Support for Connecticut East this week comes from EastCon for high school completion, English language instruction, and employment and job training services. Go to eastcon.org slash get started today. EastCon, you've got this. He's been in office now for a year. We talked to Eric Russell, Connecticut State Treasurer, about the success of the last 12 months he and his team have had and what challenges lie ahead in this major election year. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The state of Connecticut has many offices and departments to help make government in the state run, and one of those offices is the state treasurer. And yes, the office looks after money, but it's a lot more than just that. In fact, the office of the state treasurer is an executive office and has six divisions each with specific responsibilities. It's been a year now since Eric Russell became Connecticut's 84th state treasurer, and we sat down with the New Haven native to talk about his first year in office. Joining us is Eric Russell, Connecticut State Treasurer. Happy New Year to you, State Treasurer. Thanks for being on the podcast. Happy New Year, Brian. Happy to be here. So it's one year since you became our State Treasurer. We wanted to catch up with you about that. Tell us, we've got a lot of things to talk about, you know, in the next 20, 25 minutes about what you and your department have achieved over that last year. But for you personally, what would you say has been some of the highlights of your first year as Connecticut State Treasurer? So I've just been really Really proud of the work that we've been able to do in the agency and, and the collaboration that we've been able to kind of participate in getting that work done. There are several kind of big ticket items that we were looking to tackle coming into office this year that we were certainly able to make progress on, but there's still a lot of work ahead. And so I'm excited about what that work looks like. But, you know, overall, I think the progress that the state has made in the last year and in the last several years is really a huge benefit to to the state and to citizens across the state. I was going to say, what's it like actually coming in off the back of another great treasurer that we had before yourself? Because like the bar's sort of set, isn't it? It was great in that it was a very smooth transition between Treasurer Wood and, and I. He really made sure that we were set up to to hit the ground running right away. And that was exactly what we did. And certainly big shoes to fill. But I think what it's about is continued progress, building on the work that we've done over the last many years as we look to, to put our state in a better position moving forward. I remember when I spoke to you previously and on, on, on other occasions, and you've said this in other interviews as well, that you sort of like stepped into this role fairly so like late. Um, you were sort of like deciding whether or not you're going to do it. And, and then what's your view now a year on? You're happy that obviously you made that decision? Oh, I'm thrilled. You know, I really have enjoyed this work and I knew I was going to enjoy the role uh, having done a lot of work with the treasurer's office and being really familiar with the the office itself. But I've actually enjoyed it even more than I was initially anticipating. I think I settled into it a lot quicker in large part because of the really smooth transition. I have an incredible team around me, dedicated public servants who really sacrificed and could be doing a lot of other things, but have really been committed to serving the state and the citizens of the state. I just think it's a huge opportunity to make really meaningful change in our state. If you look at many of the things that we've accomplished this year, whether it's improved pension performance or the successful funding of baby bonds or improvements that we've made to unclaimed property to help get property back in the rightful hands of its owners. 
these are all things that have huge impacts on people's day-to-day lives in our state. Um, And I think it's a great opportunity really to use this role to do that work, but also to connect with the community and connect the role, you know, people and people have a better understanding of how this work actually impacts them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Before we started this interview, I was talking to you about the annual report that, you know, you are obliged to submit and, and that came out and anyone can have a look at it. And there was a paragraph in there saying, while the work of the Treasurer's Office may not typically be at the forefront of people's thoughts, this report shows how our efforts can have a real impact on people's lives and the state's economy. And that's absolutely true, isn't it? We don't think about your office and some of the other offices in our legislature that without you, effectively, government just wouldn't run. It's true. I mean, there are a lot of it was the most common question I got during the campaign, right, is people knew that the treasurer was involved in in handling money, but not what most of the role is outside of that. And I think there's often a disconnect between, you know, how this work which often involves, you know, high level fiscal policy and investment strategy, you know, connecting it with the everyday citizen in our state. But the reality is that this work saves taxpayers billions of dollars as we, you know, invest responsibly and, and grow our pension funds, as we have sound fiscal policy in terms of uh, our budgeting practices and making sure that we have money in our rainy day fund to withstand volatility in the economy whether it is, you know, improving programs for individuals to save for and families to save for college. Um, There's so many components to this that really do impact people on a day-to-day basis. And I want to make sure we're doing that work responsibly and well, and that we're also connecting the work directly with the community. Let's talk about some specifics because, you know, there's a huge amount we could talk about. Unfortunately, we've only got a limited amount of time. So let's pick up on some of those really big ticket items. You've mentioned a couple of times about the state's pension funding, you know, and it has previously been known that it was in the past of like underfunded. There were some issues with it. Talk to us about what the situation is now because it's been turning itself around and obviously your office, et cetera, has been helping to do that. Sure. Then there's several components. Our pension funds have been underfunded in large part. I mean, we went about 70 years as a state without properly funding our pensions. And so we were digging ourselves into this hole that we've made an incredible amount of progress in kind of turning that around uh, under the leadership of the governor and the legislature passing fiscal guardrails back in, in 2017. We've been able to make a lot of progress in terms of just shoring up our finances more broadly, but also to make uh, $7.7 billion in additional contributions into our pension funds. And so, you know, that is a huge factor because what it allows us to do is invest that money I mean, continue to grow our pension funds. And it's been a really steady commitment on the part of our state to kind of right those wrongs of the past and not meeting our obligations. And then the other piece is our investment performance, which we've since coming in to office, we've done a lot of work to, we have a new asset allocation that we've been in the process of right-sizing. We've made several legislative changes where we can attract and retain top-tier investment talent to build on the incredible talent that we have in the office. We've made reforms so we could strengthen our investment advisory council. You name it, there's a lot of work that's happening. But what it ultimately has led to is a really strong fiscal year in performance. We had returns of 8.5% over the last fiscal year. What it is showing, while we are long-term investors and are not looking at performance just in one-year blips, I think what we're seeing is that many of the changes and reforms that have been made are starting to take effect. And our goal is to have with those changes, with improved performance, with this new commitment to to funding our obligations that we are putting ourselves as a state in a much better 
position long term. Of course, you came into office, as we said, one year ago, really to like off the back of the pandemic as it was starting to disappear. It, of course, had catastrophic effects for the entire world, obviously not just for Connecticut. How did that sort of play into sort of the playbook, as it were, for you as to, you know, how you were going to deal with things? Because there was money from the federal government, this ARPA fund money, that's obviously been helping out, but that's not exhaustive amounts of money. And then, of course, you know, the markets were up and down, as they always are. But of course, COVID sort of like affected them some more. Talk to us a little bit about some of those challenges because they were clearly at the front of your mind. Certainly. I mean, I I think the the biggest thing with kind of the response to the pandemic and from a a fiscal point as as a state was understanding that those federal funds were not going to be here forever. And I think what the governor and, and the legislature have done very responsibly, and I think this is part of the importance of the fiscal discipline that we've applied as a state, is our budgeting practices, our borrowing practices, the positions that we've taken as a state have not been dependent on those funds at all. And we have really have been committed to just a culture of fiscal discipline. It's why we've seen in many states that have had or have challenges right now where they're looking at deficits or you know they're tapping into reserve funding because there there wasn't that same responsive responsible uh, application when it came to budgeting and, and things like that and so they're folks are having to respond to that we are still in a spot as a state where we are running a surplus we have a full rainy day fund which can allow us to again withstand any volatility that may come up but I think you know we're we've really approached it the right way um, and I think because of that we're, we're certainly seeing the benefit. Let's talk as well about Connecticut Baby Bonds. It was a huge publicity push for that last year. It was in all of the media. I know it was something that you really wanted to get going. And and obviously, the governor was involved in that as well. But also, U.S. Senator Cory Booker came to Connecticut as well back in April of 2023, joined you for a roundtable discussion about baby bonds. Why was it such a big issue for you? I think it's it's critical in this role. And I think one of the things I love most about the role of treasurer is that somewhat uniquely positioned to really think about the long-term future of our state. It's not just about a budget cycle. You know, many of the investments, whether it's on the pension side or it's thinking about fiscal policy, is decisions that really may not have an impact until five or seven or 10 years down the road. And I think as we think about the overall fiscal health of the state, we also have to think about what that looks like for everyone, right? And as one of the wealthiest states in the country, we struggle with one of the largest wealth gaps. And so what baby bonds is really about is making an investment in people making a long-term investment in, in building future for the state that's more equitable and that levels the playing field in some ways. And I thought it was critical as we are, are making some of these decisions and making so much incredible progress from a, a fiscal health standpoint that we're also making these long-term investments in, in people. And with this program, you know, we have the ability to work toward closing this really large wealth gap that we have in our state by creating opportunities for people to, to lift themselves up in a meaningful way, to have some capital to start initiatives that are ultimately about building long-term wealth. The program will impact people from all 169 towns from every demographic in our state. And you know, as Connecticut has done on many fronts, um, it's exciting that we're leading the way on this initiative as well. Yeah, it must give you a real sense of pride. I mean, obviously, it was important, as you said, and we understand, you know, we live in a world where everything seems to get more costly and any sort of like financial advantage. Clearly, that's great for everybody, especially if there's parts of society that have been disadvantaged in the past. But you must get a, a certain sense of pride as well that Connecticut is up there sort of really setting the trend. Certainly. And it, it took a lot of collaboration. I think this is, I'm really proud of what this says about our state. Think about programs like something like this, right? Where 
we are investing in the future that investing money over the course of 18 plus years for individuals, you know, with collaboration from the governor and the legislature and community organizations, so many stakeholders that were involved in getting this really big initiative over the line. It's especially telling, I think, when you looking at the fact that most folks who are in political office right now who were helpful in getting this done will not be in office when the ultimate benefit of this program is actually paid out. And so I think what it took a lot of political courage for people to step up on something that wasn't going to necessarily benefit them in the short term. But I think it's really about what this, the opportunity this creates for our state, for individuals from a social perspective, but also economically, understanding that if more people are participating and able to engage in our economy in a really meaningful way, if more people are able to purchase homes in their communities, if we're able to invest, particularly in a lot of communities that have been underinvested in historically, it will benefit everyone. We will have a stronger workforce. We will have a more skilled workforce. And I think that's why we were able to build such a broad coalition of support from elected leaders and from community stakeholders. Talk to us a little bit as well. You mentioned this earlier in the interview about unclaimed property being returned. What exactly is that and why was that important? Sure. So part of the role of the treasurer's office is overseeing unclaimed property. And what that is, is if you had a bank account or if there was a refund check that was owed to you by a doctor's office and say you moved and those account holders were not able to get in touch with you to get that money back, it ultimately comes over to the state. And I'm responsible for safeguarding those funds or that property and then getting it back to its rightful owner. And so what we've done since coming in is really implement some new procedures, really focused on technology to make sure that we can gather information, more quickly process claims and get money back to in the hands of rightful owners. And we've made certainly made advances. There's a lot of work that we continue to do on that front, but we were able to really increase the number of claims. We returned money to about 73,000 rightful owners this year. And as a whole, we were able to surpass the $1 billion mark in total property returned to residents of the state. Education, always another big sort of like talking point. Again, always seems to get more expensive. The Connecticut Higher Education Trust, CHET, tell us and talk to us about that, because again, that's another thing, which is I know a priority of yours and something that got a really big push, you know, in 2023. Certainly. So CHET is our our college, the Connecticut Higher Education Trust, and it's ultimately about helping families save for future education expenses. And so we've, we do a lot of work out advertising the program, making sure that families know about CHET and how to access it so that folks are opening accounts and saving and really thinking about the future. We have several programs and and pieces of the program that have been really helpful. We have the Baby Scholars Program, which automatically designates money into an account for anyone that opens a, a new CHET account within the first year of their child's birth. We have scholarships through the Connecticut the Dream Big program for CHET, which we give scholarships out for students from K to 12 who participate in the competition, which could be anything from writing an essay or doing a piece of artwork. But it's really about getting people to think about saving for the future and and higher education. And so we we're excited about the progress made. We've had so many, nearly 18,000 new accounts were opened up this year in CHET. 
And we want people to know about the program and, and certainly take advantage of it. The other thing, of course, which was another big story for 2023 was the passing of legislation that people at school will soon have to take financial literacy courses. Many people have said it's been a long time in coming. Another important thing, though, and I'm sure you were very supportive of this because money is everything. It, it drives so many things, as, as you well know, and we need to understand the value of it, how to use it. So you must have been pleased to to see that get passed and the effect that that's, you know, ultimately could have on future generations in hopefully understanding, as I say, money better and maybe, you know, not getting into debt quite so quickly. Certainly. I, this was a, a huge initiative and I think a, a huge step in the right direction for our state. And I really give credit to the, the legislature and Representative Corey Paris, who were involved in, in leading the charge on this front. You know, there were many school districts or schools that had financial literacy or, or some type of financial education courses, and some that required it as part of graduation. But what this legislation will do is, is for every student entering high school that entered high school this past year in October, it will be a requirement for graduation. And as you mentioned, right, this is the foundation for everything. We all use these skills every day of our lives and being able to make sure that we have students and young adults coming out of school who know some of the basics around money and, and credit and savings and the importance of really thinking about these things and budgeting and planning is huge. And I think it will really, again, these longer term investments, thinking about putting our state in a much better spot when people have the tools and skills they need to, to thrive long term. As you look back over the last year, was there anything that didn't quite happen that you wish could have happened? I don't think that there's you know any one thing. I, I understand that this is one year and just getting started. There certainly is plenty more work to do. And we've been diligent on that. We are working really hard, baby bonds being an example. While we pass the legislation and have the program up and running, we want to maximize this opportunity. We know we're engaging with families and children who are in many ways in most need in our state. And so what we've done is we're partnering with philanthropy, with nonprofit organizations, with community stakeholders really looking to to build out additional wraparound services into the program, making sure that we're able to engage with families, not just 18 years down the road, but throughout their child's life, connecting families with workforce development training, but really, again, looking at how we maximize this program to give kids the, the best opportunity to succeed in the future. So much of the work around pension funds, you know, while we've made progress, we certainly are not done. And there's a lot of work that we uh, continue to do as we implement new reforms, as we are reviewing managers and ultimately wanting to set our our pension funds up for long-term sustained success, we continue to do work with our rating agencies wanting to, we've made a lot of progress in improving our ratings over the last several years and have received several rating upgrades just this past year, but there's still room to improve on that front. And so you know, I, I don't feel like we've missed any huge opportunity, but I think there is so much more opportunity ahead as we continue to make progress. Of course, 2024, a big election year, as we all know, also means it's a shorter legislative session. Does that somewhat hamper or does that give you sort of like certain different challenges for this year uh, moving forward on things that, you know, you want to try and see accomplished in this year? We certainly have uh, priorities for this legislative session, though they are probably we don't have as many kind of large scale pushes as we did last year. And I think, you know, this is the, the challenge every year that the legislature will have to face in just prioritizing with the shorter session. But I think we're, we're well positioned, again, as a state. I think we, you know, the, 
budget adjustments will obviously a big be a big piece of this legislative session. And I think we are in a strong position overall, but we will continue to kind of move our agenda really focused on strong fiscal supports and fiscal policy through my office, and then continuing to build on the work that we've been able to accomplish so far. Well, Connecticut State Treasurer Eric Russell, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for giving us an update on the work that you and your office has undertaken, obviously, over the last year. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Pleasure to be with you. And you can find out more about the office and the work of the State Treasurer's Office at the official website, portal.ct.gov forward slash OTT. Connecticut East this week is made possible by... EastCon, know someone who wants to learn English? Enroll today in one of EastCon's free English language learner programs offered virtually and in person. Learn English to get a better job, to access training or college, to help your children with school or to prepare for US citizenship. Succeed from registration to graduation with flexible classes that suit your busy lifestyle. Visit eastcon.org get started today and take your first step towards a brighter future. EastCon, you've got this. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Connecticut's adult use cannabis market turned one year old on Wednesday the 10th of January, and despite the state poised to meet its projected tax revenue for the first year, many in the industry say it could have been better. Ben Tinsley is the vice president of the New England region for Acreage Holdings, who sell adult use cannabis and medical marijuana to Connecticut residents across the state from their botanist dispensaries, and says even with the December 1st increase from a quarter ounce to a half ounce, it hasn't done much for his and many other businesses. So we didn't see any substantial increase, right? As more operators are opening up, that pie is being eaten by more people. You know, so nothing substantially in terms of uh, revenue change came about with the uh, allotment change. Tinsley says the Connecticut market is being hampered by lack of inventory and cannabis growers, which in turn is keeping prices in the state high and forcing people to travel to nearby states which have lower prices and higher purchase limits. There's an abundance of inventory in Massachusetts, and it's uh, the opposite in Connecticut. And I think that not just because we don't have it in the state, I think Connecticut loses revenue to states like Massachusetts and soon New York if they aren't able to get other producers up online. Connecticut currently has four licensed growers in the state, and Tinsley says demand is outstripping supply. The state is poised to hit its tax revenue projections for 2023 of around $26 million, but Tinsley says their tax projection for 2024 of around $45 million may not be realized if the supply situation doesn't change. Connecticut's adult use marijuana prices are some of the highest in the region, with Massachusetts being the cheapest in the Northeast. Researchers at Yale School of Medicine have identified part of a drug currently used to treat epilepsy that may help to protect the joints of those suffering with the debilitating condition of osteoarthritis. Doctors Chuan Julu and Dr. Wenyu Fu adapted cell membrane 
proteins in the body of mice with osteoarthritis and using the drug saw significantly reduced joint damage. Dr. Julu says their findings are significant for those living with osteoarthritis. It's the most common type of arthritis. It's the leading cause of disability. It affects over 15% of global population. In the United States alone, more than 48 million Americans suffer from this disease and it's associated pain. Dr. Wen Yu Fu is one of the two authors of the study and says their findings are groundbreaking when it comes to this condition. The first gene we find which could concurrently slow down the OA progression while relieve the OA associated pain. First gene we identified so far, so we got quite excited and we hope it could be translated into the clinical use. The findings open new avenues for disease modifying treatments, according to the researchers who have published their study in the renowned medical journal Nature. High-demand products are usually big targets for scammers, and weight-loss drug Ozempic is no exception. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has this report. Scams across the U.S. are being reported with promises of quick access to the drug. The scam offers people searching online for Ozempic a significantly lower price than at a pharmacy. Ads, websites, and social media posts are offering it without a prescription. All people have to do is pay with a digital wallet app such as Cash App or Zelle. Kristen Johnson with the Better Business Bureau of Connecticut says these are all red flags that it's a scam. But given the lengths scammers are going to, they can be a bit harder to recognize. One consumer reported actually had a teleconsult with a supposed doctor. And this just sort of legitimized the process, made it seem like it was a real pharmaceutical company. But after he placed the order, he never received the drug. She adds when that consumer tried to call customer service, they only got automatic responses back, nothing more. Johnson says this can prove detrimental to consumers who could lose hundreds of dollars to these kinds of scams. She notes anyone who has been scammed should report it to the Better Business Bureau's Scam Tracker immediately at bbb.org slash scam tracker. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Connecticut's Attorney General William Tong has filed seven new enforcement actions against wholesalers and retailers engaging in the distribution and sale of potent illicit cannabis products in Connecticut. Wholesalers include Shark Wholesale Corporation in Bridgeport, Star Enterprise 74 LLC in New Britain, and RZ Smoke Incorporated in Suffield. The four retailers are Greenleaf Farms in New London, Smoker's Corner in Norwich, Anesthesia Convenience and Smoke in New Haven, and Planet Zaza in East Haven. In each instance, the Office of the Attorney General is alleging violations of the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, which carries fines of up to $5,000 per violation. Greenleaf Farms is a CBD retailer in New London with no license to sell cannabis products in Connecticut. Despite that, investigators from both the Department of Consumer Protection and Office of the Attorney General on multiple visits discovered numerous illegal high THC products for sale, including potent edibles designed to look like children's cereal. Greenleaf Farms also offered for sale marijuana blunts, which were offered in various THC concentrations. The products lacked a variety of required warning statements and labels and do not appear to be produced by licensed facilities or tested in accordance with state law. Greenleaf Farms represents itself as a licensed dispensary despite lacking such license. And Smoker's Corner is a smoke shop in Norwich with no license to sell cannabis products in the state either. During multiple visits, an investigator from the office 
Office of the Attorney General observed illegal high THC edibles for sale after the investigator asked if there was any pot available for purchase. A Smoker's Corner employee retrieved a mason jar full of marijuana flour from back room. The employee then weighed the marijuana on a scale, bagged it and sold it to the Office of the Attorney General's investigator. The cannabis products lacked required warnings and labels, did not appear to be produced by licensed facilities or tested in accordance with Connecticut state law. And in the bulletin this week, the town of Killingly has begun the process of leaving the Northeast District Department of Health, or NDDH, after several businesses and construction firms in the town reported they were struggling to receive vital health services. NDDH provides a variety of services, such as food service regulations, planning for public health emergencies, and prevention programs that address topics such as obesity, heart health, and rabies. The department currently serves 12 towns in the northeast of the state. Killingly Town Manager Mary Calorio said there were several areas of concern that have been worsening over the past five years, including low inspection rates for food establishments and inspections for septic systems and wells that have held up construction projects in the town for six months or more. Calorio says they will monitor NDDH for the next few months and if improvements occur, the council will either direct her to form a health department or a new health district with other local towns or rescind their withdrawal from NDDH. And in the Connecticut Examiner, the City of New London School District is considering moving a group of fifth graders to Benny Dover Jackson Middle School next year to make space in the elementary schools for preschool classrooms. Board of Education Chair Elaine Maynard Adams said that the need for additional early childhood classrooms was a result of a law passed in the state legislature that raises the age of children eligible for kindergarten beginning in the 2024-25 school year. Maynard Adams said the new law requires children to have turned five years old by the time they enter kindergarten in September rather than the current requirement that they turn five years old by January 1st. About 94-year-olds in New London who would otherwise have been eligible for kindergarten no longer will be. It's estimated something like 90,000 Connecticut children will be affected by the new law. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>